Four of the 13 letters from the Apostle Paul in the New Testament were written from prison, so I've been preaching this sermon series called Letters from Prison because I was quite amazed at how much of the world's great literature comes from that grim place. And so today I'm looking at Colossians chapter 3. I was going to read most of this chapter for you, but the first three verses are so powerful and dense that I think I'll quit right there. Paul writes to the church at Colossae, So if you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on the things that are above, not on the things that are on earth, for you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Please pray with me. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. The Netflix series Orange is the New Black is about life in the federal penitentiary for women at Danbury, Connecticut. In an early episode of that series, Officer Caputo, callous from years of experience with hardened criminals, criticizes the performance of a young rookie corrections officer named Fisher. And he says to her, Fisher, you can't go easy on these inmates. I saw you look the other way when that inmate took a contraband muffin. You have to exercise your authority. They'll take advantage of you. Just call them inmate. Don't call them by their names. It reminds them that they're not really people. Officer Fisher looks puzzled. They are people, she says. You can't think that way, Fisher. They're sheep. We lead them from from one room to the other. We feed them. They're not like you and me. And that brief exchange between Warden Caputo and Officer Fisher could serve as a terse precis for the entire series. Prison is about annihilating your humanity. Everyone's a number, not a name. Monotonous, shapeless uniforms of glaring orange eliminate all style and individuality. Bars and cinder blocks constrict your existence to a pinched and narrow space. There's nothing beautiful to look at, and you are utterly dependent for your survival on the correctional system, which, for the most part, hates your guts. And so prison is about trampled dignity and erased humanity and demeaning powerlessness and nerve-wracking vulnerability. You're shocked if anyone treats you humanely in a place like this. On Easter Sunday, after one of these prison sermons, a member of the congregation came up to me and wanted to tell me a story that was about 25 years old. He looked like he was about 40-something. And he told me that when he was 20-something, he was serving as a rookie reporter for a newspaper somewhere in Illinois. I failed to ask him which newspaper. And he says that one Sunday, he had an assignment with a group, a large group of other reporters, who were going to write together a feature story about how Illinoisans celebrated Easter that year. And his contribution to this project was to go to a state penitentiary somewhere in Illinois, again, I didn't ask him which one, where... Joseph Cardinal Bernardin, Archbishop of Chicago in the 80s and 90s, was going to celebrate a mass with the inmates. 
And so most of the men in the prison are in this chapel or in an auditorium when the cardinal arrives and he enters with a flourish amidst an impressive entourage of paparazzi and deacons and vergers, resplendent as cardinals always are in his scarlet robes and his huge begemmed pectoral cross and his snappy little red beretta perched on his brow. And when the men see his flashy vestments, several of them burst into tears because it dawns on them that Cardinal Bernardin is going to show them the same respect that he would show to the Chicago aristocracy celebrating a mass at Holy Name Cathedral. One inmate says, I thought he'd show up in a clerical collar with a plastic chalice borrowed from the kitchen, like most of them do. But when he showed up dressed as the vicar of Christ, it was as if Jesus himself showed up. You're shocked if anybody treats you humanely in a place like this. And of course, that's the environment Paul is writing from when he pens this little letter to the insignificant church at Colossae. Think of the kind of folk Paul is surrounded with in this Roman prison cell near the end of his life, writing around 60 A.D. These are people who have, of course, made a mess of their lives. These are people whose lives have gone off the rails and ended up in a pile of twisted metal and broken glass and jagged edges. These are people who need a second chance. These are people who need a do-over, yes? They're people of trampled dignity and erased humanity. They all need someone, God or a judge or a friend, to see the latent humanity beneath the grim exterior. And so to the Colossians, Paul writes about getting another chance, about starting over again, about dying to an old way of life and rising to newness of life in Christ. So, if you've been raised with Christ, he says to the Colossians, if you've been raised with Christ, set your minds on the things that are above, not on earthly things, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Now that is complicated and dense imagery. It doesn't leap off the page in comprehension to us immediately. But the snappier Bible students among you will recognize that baptismal imagery for what it is. Paul is asking the Colossians to remember their own experience of baptism, perhaps years before, when they died to an old way of life and had a resurrection to newness of life in Christ. Now, I love the way we celebrate baptism here. I love the innocent babies and the beaming parents and the photo-snapping grandparents and the adoring congregation. It's all very lovely. But to be honest about it, it sort of disguises the original symbolism of the sacrament, doesn't it? There was a time in Christendom, and in some corners of the church, this is still the way it's done, there was a time when you didn't get a handful of water slapped on your forehead, but you were immersed bodily and totally into a body of water, like Jesus in the River Jordan. And so one Sunday morning, when I was not on duty here, early in my time in the Chicago area, I took my wife to worship at the Willow Creek Church in South Barrington, Illinois. And if you've been to Willow Creek, you know that the music is not the same, the preaching is not the same, the space is not the same, and the sacrament of baptism is really, really not the same. 
And so when it came time for the sacrament, this large transparent plexiglass tank, the size of a small swimming pool, it would have taken up most of this chancel, appeared in the chancel or the stage or the dais, whatever you want to call it, as if from nowhere. I still don't know where it came from. It was just there. Four feet of water in this tank, thousands of gallons, and then 120 baptisans start stepping down into this pool. They're all dressed identically in Jesus t-shirts and jeans and barefoot, and they step into the tank where they are completely immersed by worship assistants. 120 of them. No wonder that church has 10,000 members. And then when they're done, they come out soaking wet, and they get a, a Willow Creek, a gleaming white Willow Creek robe, like it's from the Ritz-Carlton or something. And, and you know, there's a, it, it's a beautiful way of celebrating the sacrament, but there's sort of also a, a mild violence to it. Because you think to herself, she's going under the water. She can't breathe. But then she rises soaking wet and dripping and joyful and laughing, and you see it. You see the death to an old way and the rising to a new way of life. There's a harrowing beauty to that way of celebrating the sacrament. And that's what Paul, surrounded by people who've crashed their lives, people who need a second chance, writes to his friends at Colossae. You have died, he says, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And I love that line. My life is hidden with Christ in God. That is to say, when God looks at me, all God sees is Christ. John Calvin used to say that when we appear before God Almighty, we appeared as if dressed in the raiment of Jesus Christ the righteous. We stand there before God and the tattered rags of our mistakes and our dissembling and our rampant self-regard. And there we stand dressed in rags and all God sees is the resplendent sartorial glory of Jesus Christ the righteous as if in scarlet cardinal robes and a gleaming pectoral cross, and a cocky red beretta on our forehead. And that's, so, that's, so, so Paul's message is for anybody who's crashed their life and needs a do-over, anybody who needs a second chance, anybody who needs to see the begrimmed humanity latent beneath the surface of our lives, One last thing, and then I'll quit. So, everybody knows what's special about Saturday, this coming Saturday, right? April 23, 2016. William Shakespeare died on April 23rd, which, by the way, is his birthday. April 23, 1616. So this coming Saturday is the 400th anniversary of William Shakespeare's death, and that's why Chicago Symphony Orchestra and Lyric Opera and Chicago Shakespeare Theater are doing all of this wonderful stuff in the city this year, celebration of that anniversary. Everybody knows that. But did you also know that Miguel de Cervantes also died in 1616, within days of Shakespeare, perhaps on April 22, 1616. So this is the 400th anniversary of Cervantes' death as well. Because of these dual deaths, Cervantes and Shakespeare, UNESCO has named annually April 23 as the International Day of the Book. It's a wonderful thing. And you know, I know Cervantes' death is not a big deal to those of us who speak English. On the other hand, 
By common acclamation, his magnum opus, Don Quixote, is probably one of the ten best books written of all time. Sometimes modern Spanish owes so much to Miguel de Cervantes that Spanish is sometimes called la lengua de Cervantes, the language of Cervantes. Sigmund Freud learned Spanish just so he could read Quixote and the original. Cervantes is to Spanish what Shakespeare is to English. Miguel was a soldier in the Spanish army when he was a young man, and at one point he was abducted by Barbary Coast pirates and served as a slave in Algiers for five years until his parents ransomed him and he returned home, whereupon he became a penniless author for years and years until he wrote his masterpiece, Don Quixote, which he conceived of, by the way, in prison, in slavery. So, in a way, Don Quixote is also a letter from prison. And you may never have read the book, but you know the story, right? It's about this crazy old gentleman on the wrong side of 50 who has read so many bad romance novels that it's fried his brain and he thinks of himself as a knight errant whose job it is to right all the wrongs in the world. So in the course of his adventures, he tilts at windmills because he thinks they're giants and a barber's wash basin becomes his holy grail, the golden helmet of Manbrino, and this shabby tavern he thinks of as an imposing castle. And at the height of his delusion, Quixote meets in that shabby tavern his lady. Right? Her name is Aldanza, one of the ugliest names in literature. <laughs> and she's a kitchen maid. Wherever she goes, she has this grimy wash rag with her. And she's dressed in peasant garb, the peasant garb of the poor and her arms and her face are always coated with a thin film of sweat and dirt. Not to put too fine a point on it, she is a slut. Her words, not mine. Now, my first encounter with Don Quixote, Cervantes' masterpiece, was through Dale Wasserman's retelling of the story in his 1965 play, Man of La Mancha. You know, man of La Mancha, to dream the impossible dream, to fight the unbeatable foe. 30 years ago, I was a 20-something rookie pastor in my first call in Philadelphia, and a member of my youth group was playing Eldanza in her high school's production of Man of La Mancha. She was a 16-year-old junior at the time. I had confirmed her in confirmation class three years before. She was one of my favorites. Loved the spotlight, beautiful, talented. My wife and I had to see this, so we went. And if you know the play, you know that there is a brutal and vivid ravaging scene in this play. And the director had artfully toned down the violence of the original, but there was still some modest bodice ripping in this ravaging scene and we squirmed, my wife and I squirmed in our seats as we watched these high school boys playing tavern ne'er-do-wells, pawing at our innocent 16-year-old friend. We had to cover our eyes. It was like going to Jaws for the first time. You couldn't watch. I was a wreck. It was just a high school performance. High school voices, high school production values modest staging and costumes, but to this day, 
it remains the most moving theatrical experience I've ever witnessed. My wife was embarrassed for me but by the end. Of, she had to drive home because I was weeping so copiously. And I think the reason this performance moved me so much is because I'm a preacher and I'm always on the hunt for gospel-shaped stories. And if there's ever a gospel-shaped story in all of literature, it is Man of La Mancha. Because as you know, when the delusional Quixote wanders into this shabby tavern that he thinks is an imposing castle, he's, he, he takes one look at Aldonza, the kitchen maid, and he is smitten. And he cannot look at her further. He says, sweet lady, fair virgin, I dare not gaze full upon your countenance, lest I be blinded by beauty. Quixote talks like that because he's read too many bad novels. <laughs> lest I be blinded by beauty. She thinks he is mad, and of course he is. She's, he asks her her name. She says, my name is Aldonza. Quixote says, lady, surely you jest. From now on, thy name shall be Dulcinea forevermore. It is as mellifluous as one of the dulcet harpsichord tunes of Vivaldi, right? Dulcinea, it is musical. I see heaven when I see thee, Dulcinea, sings Quixote. Thy name like a prayer an angel whispers. Now I find thee and the world shall know thy glory. And she scoffs at him. She says, I am not your lady. I was spawned in a ditch by a mother who left me there naked and cold and too hungry to cry. I never blamed her. I'm sure she left me there hoping I'd have the good sense to die. So, of course, I became, as befitted my delicate birth, the most casual bride of the mangiest scum of the earth. But Quixote says, and still thou art my lady. She says, how shall I be a lady? Won't you look at me? Look at me. God, won't you look at me? Look at the kitchen slut reeking of sweat, born on a dung heap, to die on a dung heap, a strumpet. Men use and forget. I am only Aldanza, I am no one, I'm nothing at all. And Quixote sings, Now and forevermore, thou art my lady, Dulcinea. And of course, by the end of the story, she finally surrenders to Quixote's relentless delusions. And she lives up to and into her beautiful name, and she becomes in truth, forevermore, Dulcinea. <laughs> One of my best friends came upon Man of La Mancha via the 1972 film. It stars Peter O'Toole as Quixote and James Coco as Sancho Panza, Seville Loren as Aldanza. And if you're interested, it's a nice way of connecting with the story. You can get it at library or Amazon. And so my friend, just 45 years ago, 1972, my friend goes to the theater and he sits down in the auditorium and the film begins to spiel off. And before it gets a third of the way through, he is so overcome with emotion that he has to leave the theater. And he goes home 
and he collects himself and he finally sees it to the, to the end only after recovering his wits and going a second time. I'm so glad when he told me that story. That's why he's one of my closest friends. And I think I was so moved by the story because it's a retelling of the New Testament, isn't it? It's for everyone who's made a wreck of life and needs a new start. It is about God's deluded but relentless love for us. There we stand in the tattered rags of our errant humanity. And all God sees is the splendid raiment of Jesus Christ the righteous. Our lives are hidden with Christ in God. And this is grand, great, glad, good news. Because greatly loved, we can greatly love and greatly live. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost. Amen.